Hello, and welcome to the Wild Honey Collective podcast, a storied listening space where we pollinate ideas about how we can alchemize wild sources of wealth into health by learning from the wisdom of ecosystems. In particular, we look to the wild honeybees who do the work and public service of pollination, not only to nurture the next generation to life, but to nurture all life by bringing to fruition the food we eat. The bees thrive in highly organized female-led social structures where every individual role serves the queen who supports the life of the collective. Amanda Pressgraves is a globally ranked triathlete, entrepreneur, and author of the Non-Recipe Book, a not-your-average-cookbook that teaches you to write your own recipes in the kitchen, sports, and life. Woven with intentionally imprecise methods for creating nutritious, resourceful, and fueling dishes for the active person, the Non-Recipe Book offers a new framework for approaching the kitchen and our world, starting with our mind. You really get the sense of the energy Amanda's approach to health gives you in this book because in this episode you can feel our excitement through this conversation and I think you guys are going to love it so let's dive in. Hello Amanda! Hello! I'm so excited thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. It is so exciting that you've taken on this project and also been inviting people to follow your journey through it and I'm so excited to read your book thank you also to taste your food and thank Um, you for supporting my book too oh my gosh it was a big part of like crowdfunding and and bringing in a community around it was that's the whole point of writing right is like to connect with others and share thoughts and converse over it so it would feel wrong to just hold this like but in secret and I, I want to share something, and it's this incredible, vulnerable act, but it's always worth it. And, like, getting the feedback from you and feeling seen as I want this book to be seen, it, like, just makes my heart tickle. So thank you for seeing it as, as I intentionally want it to come across. Absolutely. And that kind of touches on one of the undercurrents in your book that I wanted to start mm. out with. Um, you've described your recipe writing as intentionally imprecise Mm -hmm. because a big part of your message is the importance of making your recipe your own based on the unique conditions Mm -hmm. of your kitchen and of your life. Mm -hmm. And a big part of our journey through the Wild Honey Collective is about finding and expressing your authenticity. Um, This brings up questions about like our culture of perfectionism to me. And how you're talking about when you're writing, you're inviting other people to be on that journey with you. But also Mm -hmm. when you're cooking for people, you are inviting people to try your creations and create space Mm -hmm. together. So do you have any personal stories of where this authentic exploration and expression has taken you and why you've stayed committed to that creative process even when it's uncomfortable yeah and I think like there's so many points to this topic and 
I, what brought me to talking and writing about this non-recipe book that was because, well, first of all, I just wanted, it started because people were like, oh my gosh, you make such good food. Can you put it into a book? So I was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. And very quickly I realized I was the last person to ever write a recipe book because I've never followed a recipe myself and I haven't in life either. And so I wanted to be able to show people how to do that for themselves. And across my experiences in the food system, but also as like an athlete and an entrepreneur, I've realized that there is no one right way to eat or live your life. And so finding these parallels between fueling ourselves nutritionally in ways that is unique to us parallels to also like that same path in our life. And it's, it's one that is a constant practice of like choosing to take the path that is most often very uncomfortable, but you're doing it for yourself and you're taking that path, knowing that this is the right direction that I need to go on and might be untraditional and unconventional to other people. This might be a meal that a lot of other people don't eat, but this personally feels makes my body feel on fire and just ignites life in me. And this is also an untraditional career that gives me life too. And so it's that constant practice of committing to choose and do something for ourselves. And yeah, going back to your question of like how, where that's led me, um, it's, it's led me to feeling like I'm living creatively and that looks different every day. Uh, it's in the type of work that I pursue. Pursue is also in the type of movement that my life tends to invite. Where like I'm outside on the trails in nature, or like going on a mountain bike ride with friends. Um, it's how I've made connections in my community. It's prioritizing all of these different realms of my life, and I think truly stepping into our essence and living creatively demands that we give attention and energy to all those different realms. And when you step into your power, you can do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that so many people would rather not try than fail. Yes. Right? And, like, you're an athlete. Mm-hmm. You're someone who has achieved. But people see the end product mm-hmm. where you have already put in, like, your 1,000 hours oh, yeah. or 10,000 hours yeah. of practice. Oh, good. Malcolm Gladwell there. Yes. Yeah. And, like, people often compare themselves to others who have really been in a process with themselves Mm -hmm. of doing a thing and learning how to do it well Mm -hmm. but we tend to stop ourselves for fear of doing something imperfectly rather than experimenting and I think that very much applies to our approach to food and our health as well Oh my gosh. And so, I mean, this writing this book is a microcosm of constantly failing to, I mean, we were talking about this earlier, but my book was pushed back because I ended up, I got a concussion through the process and there were points where like my brain just could not do the work that it needed to do to write. And to me, I felt like such a failure for not committing to the deadline that I set myself on and didn't really matter to anyone else, just mattered to me. Um, but so many times in my life through athletics taught me this and also business that like if you're not failing you're not really doing it right and I know if I'm pushing myself beyond my capabilities like I'm going to fail I'm gonna mess up and it is gonna be imperfect and like the goal is not to do it perfectly and it's also when it comes to food like 
there is no perfect way to eat. And so like these lessons in life have carried over to the kitchen. And so on the topic of fueling and eating beautifully and perfectly, that doesn't have to be this perfectly curated salad and overpriced juice. That like the wellness industry wants us to believe that the practices that are best for ourselves come at an expensive price tag and they have to look a certain way. And like that is could not be furthest from the truth. That is something for us to decide. There is no one perfect diet for anyone. And that is like my core message of this book. There are so many biosocial, psychological, cultural, you know, chemical processes in our body that are going to dictate what's perfect for us. And I'm not so naive to believe that we all need to eat a certain way for that. So there's no one perfect diet out there. However, the focus on perfection keeps people from trying and attempting at all. And I want people to realize that like, it is okay. Like here's your invitation into the kitchen to fail. Like that's what the kitchen does. (laughs) Like I have this step-by-step process for people to be like, go fail. Like if you're not failing in the kitchen, if you're not burning that first slice of bread that you're trying to toast and that's where we're starting from square one, like you're not doing it right. And like, what's the worst that happens? You order pizza. And I know (laughs) not everyone is afforded that opportunity to do so, but on their own scale, they are like, we can, where is that invitation to start and to begin? And movement has taught me that like getting on a mountain bike has shown me time and time again, like here's your invitation to not do it right. Like you mentioned, I've succeeded in athletics and I've also failed a lot too. And I find that I love pursuing movements right now that actually invite me to fail because it gives me confidence that I can do like get over that hump later in life as well. And I mean, let's talk about you starting pole dancing, you know, like, <laughs> like that is your place to learn and practice and grow. And I love like watching you step into that power, like in your videos. Cause I'm like, that's where she finds her flow. Like that's where she's like learning about herself. And that looks different for all of us. Like to me, it's endurance challenges for you. Oh it's God. getting on the pole. Yes. And finding whatever it is that you want to fail hard enough until yeah. the point that you get better. Oh my gosh. And I find that, yes, you fail so much. And then like, if I'm not failing, I get a little bored. And I think that's part of like the ADHD inside of me. Like I'm very stimulated by a challenge. I love not being good at something at first. It's, it's the most beautiful process to learn about myself and understand myself through the process of feeling. Like I feel like that really sheds light on our mind and who we are, which I write a lot about our mind in the book. And it's a common string among everything in the kitchen and in life. And once I stop failing and it gets a little boring, like I'm like, what's the next thing? Like, give it to me, give it to me real life. That's kind of why I wrote the book. I was like, I need something. I need something to push me outside of my comfort zone. And I mean, starting this podcast might be one for you too. Like it's mm-hmm. like, it encourages like conversations that you do put yourself out there and share these things and have to prepare for. It. And it's a commitment. Like it that is a commitment dedicating yourself to anything new. Absolutely. And I hope y'all are listening because (laughs) so many of us are not, you know, not comfortable in that beginner's space. Yes. But yeah, this is, this is really like, it's important to recognize the, the fruits of that time. And just like talking about the beginner's mindset. So, um, I've done, I did this research for my book and I had this survey and I was, finding comparisons on how like how people believed in themselves how they thought themselves to be created creative how they believe that they could put something in the kitchen together with limited resources and and also how they perceive their 
um, relation with life? Do they see themselves to be creative people? Can they go create a business or an idea out of nothing? And I found these parallels between people that had confidence in the kitchen and also in their life. And so often I found that the people that didn't know how to cook a meal for themselves also like didn't really feel like they could go create a life for themselves either. And so that's when I, I had that aha moment of being like, ah, oh, how do I take someone through the process of being a beginner in the kitchen and like finding and unlocking their power through that, through food, through like a safe place to practice and fail, to learn about themselves, to find lessons that they apply to life. And, and I think like at the core of that is like starting, like being a beginner, like starting with nothing, like starting with limited resources. Like we can start with things that are limited in us and, and we can turn it into something that's so beautiful. That's amazing. Your research weaves together storytelling, neuroscience research, and a philosophy of self-compassion mm. as a recipe or perhaps a non-recipe for sustaining health. Mental health is often left out of the conversation when we talk about building healthy food choices that support us. But one of the foundational stories of your narrative is about how your own experiences mm. with ADHD which you just mentioned, as well as severe injury, witnessing eating disorders, and burnout taught you how to practice self-compassion and advocacy. How does this shape your philosophy on health and food? If you can talk a little more about yeah, that. Yeah, I feel like each of those points, so you're talking about ADHD, my experiences of witnessing eating disorders, especially like perpetuated in the athletic culture, and then burnout, all of these contributed to how I decided to write my book. And I guess like starting from the beginning of my experiences with ADHD where I was living in a world that like simply existing was shameful. Like simply showing up as my fullest self was like the most detrimental thing that I could do. Like showing up with energy, showing up with curiosity and questions like in the traditional school system that is like very annoying. Like can you please put your hand down? Like, can you please sit down? Can you please stop talking? And yet, like, for whatever reason, I persisted in that. And it taught me, okay, I'm just going to need to follow my own path. And it led me to be very excited about movement. Like, movement was the place where I felt like I was accepted. I could, like, I had all this energy, I had excitement, I had a team spirit, and people, like, welcomed that. And it was, like, the one place that I could thrive. And same in business. That's, like, where ideas thrive and where action is important. And, like, energy is so pivotal to bringing an idea to fruition. And um, just, like, staying true to that was so important. And then, you know, you have experiences and, like, eating disorders. Like, growing up in a sport where, like, I'm in a bathing suit all the time. And I'm so fortunate that for whatever reason, I maintained a very healthy relationship with my body despite what the systems and people around me were telling me and despite seeing like making someone making comments about how much food I was eating or my coach starving me and saying you ate enough today like that's good that we don't need any more food and you know and then you talk about burnout like burnout is essentially like what keeps us from like doing good for ourselves because like when we're so exhausted like the last thing we want to do is like make food for ourselves. Like we can't even fathom putting a meal together when we're like, I just need to sit on the couch and cry. Like mm -hmm. I'm done. And so all of these things led to me writing the non-recipe book and it shaped my philosophy on food and health because I'm looking at it broadly. Like I'm looking at it 
understanding that like we're tired, like we're exhausted. Our world is demanding so much of us. We have messages from a $72 billion industry of dieting, telling us how to eat and perpetuating eating disorders. We have, you know, labels that we're placing on people telling them that their unique strengths are not good enough and that you need to fit this mold. And if you don't, then there's something wrong with you. So I, all of that is used to like so uniquely approach like the non-recipe style of cooking. And, you know, it's been something that's over the years that I've really like stepped into and understood that, okay, these experiences are actually like strengths that I've had. And it's given me broad perspective that I don't think a lot of people can look at our food system with because maybe they look at it very narrowly. And I consider myself like a very generalist and like looking at how food and health relate and how it connects to us. Absolutely. And connecting the truth that, you know, people who experience any kind of um, alienation from the whatever the norm is at whatever time in their lives and setting can often, you know, see the system for what it is. And I think our, our culture around convenience that has Mm. led to the proliferation of fast food and, you know, pre-cooked meals Mm. and Wendell Berry has this amazing essay on food and freedom. Yes. And it's, he's like, the only reason that they have, that the, like, um, major companies in the food industry have not yet found a way to insert your food pre-chewed into your mouth for you is because they have not found a profitable way to do so. <laughs> but mm. we often think that, or we're told that these ways of, you know, having our food made for us and having all of our needs delivered to us mm-hmm. is making our lives easier. Yes. It's saving us time. Yeah. But everybody's busy at, and burns yes. out. Yeah, and like <laughs> at the sake of what? Like, so I'm not saying overnight oats are going to solve all your issues here, but like <laughs> there are ways that we can eat simply and do good for ourselves and it'd be beautiful. And, and so, I mean, I work in a startup that is trying to shift like a lot of corporate approaches to like even dyeing our foods. And we're looking at it in a more like regenerative and sustainable way using algae instead of like petroleum based products. And so I'm constantly like involved in this world of like fighting corporate systems and like the same in past experiences working in sustainability. Like my role is was like to connect people with their food, bringing in local producers, showing people where their food comes from. Like we are so removed from that. We go into a grocery store and like a bag of chips is just there. Like most children don't realize that that comes from a potato that comes on a farm that someone picked and it went through a manufacturing process. And I'm not saying anything's wrong with potato chips. I eat them. We're just so removed from that. And have we, if, if we were to take a step back and slow down through that process, we have greater appreciation and presence through it. We, we truly feel the life that food gives us by understanding that like, Amelia, you were out in the garden on Willow Run and you picked me the that Swiss chard today. And like, I'm going to cook that Swiss chard tonight. I'm probably going to saute it. I'm probably going to add like a little bit of umami seasoning and some uh, coconut aminos. And I'm going to think about it with like the savory goodness of your wholesome food that like you went through the process of picking that food for me. And it was a gift, a gift that you gave me and a gift that I get then get to feed my body. And when when we just buy something at the store, a lot of times we are removed from that process. And so it's doing more harm than good for us. Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of like what our like corporate food system ultimately has like 
disconnected us from our own body, unfortunately. And just to bring in this for a moment, I have learned so much from indigenous water Mm. protectors and indigenous um, Oaxacan people that I have farmed with in Harrisonburg and the deep reverence that indigenous people still carry with them as a cultural and Mm. spiritual commitment within the framework of this huge industrial food system. Yeah. And last night I was listening to a call led by different women and two-spirit indigenous leaders of front lines resistances to fossil fuel extraction projects like Line 3 mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Minnesota, which is traditional Anishinaabe, Lakota, Nakota, Dakota land. And wild rice is the only this is the only place that wild rice grows naturally in the world and when these indigenous resistance leaders Mm -hmm. talk about why they are resisting the fossil fuel extraction projects it's not just about the pipeline it's like if one of these pipelines leaks it's over for Mm -hmm. us for generations like the the wild rice culture has persisted and so when we talk about that deep reverence for food it's like what are we doing and like just we're removing the the healing properties and connection to our food when we look at it as consumption of calories and calories out and it's like whoa food is way more than that food is spiritual connection connection to our land is community it's cultural um there's a lot of biological processes that take place and yet we're just looking at is this is his sustenance to get me to my next my next thing in life i don't have time i'm going to a meeting i need to just throw a granola bar down and the beautiful thing about indigenous cultures that we can learn from is their connection to food from the source to when it hits their mouth from how they take care of the land, they respect it, they plant in ways that revitalize and regenerate the soil instead of deplete and move on. They're working in symphony with it instead of extracting, 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 extracting. What can I get out of this? What can I take? What can, and then go on to the next land, you know? No, no, no. We can regenerate that soil. We can then turn it into something that nourishes for, for generations after us. They're thinking about their future. What are we doing? Like we realize that our climate is is at a place where we might not be around in fifty years. Like yet we continue as is. Like how is this not the most burning problem? You were talking about the way that people build confidence in mm, the kitchen and yeah. then they have that confidence in your life. And it's like, do you think that you're capable of change yeah. at the very bottom line? Yes. Like, are you the agent of, are you the sculptor of your own life? Yes. Ugh. And so you've done all of this psychological research about human behavior in relationship mm-hmm. to food and sport for your book. And I would love to know how do you weave these influences into your narrative so that people can build that sense mm-hmm. of confidence, you know, like it's one thing for you to be, you know, finding your own expression of yeah. what is healthful eating, but how do you share that with other people who have not experienced it themselves? Yeah, and I mean, I want food to be that medium. We all need to eat. Like, that is 
the basic thing that connects all of us. We need to eat. And so like, if we can't connect on food, like what can we connect on? And so my background is in exercise science. So I used to, I grew up coaching and I grew up studying human behavior and exercise science and how we can change health behaviors. And I've then like taken that into business and how that can change behaviors like in corporate systems and in our food system. And so it's a lot of people don't see that common thread there, but it's like, it's all rooted in behavior. And that's, I didn't write a book on the food system because I feel first and foremost, that's, it starts with our individual human behaviors. Like I've done so much work trying to change a system to know it starts with ourselves and, and it starts with our plate. It starts with how we fuel ourselves, And if we can fuel ourselves in one way that carries over to everything. And so I've taken a lot of principles. Are you familiar with design thinking? No. Okay. So design thinking is a way of problem solving, which we call opportunity finding in the non-recipe book. And it's rooted from Stanford's design school. Um, these are practices that you see throughout like some of the best consulting firms, um, but it's particularly rooted in like designers and engineers for how to go about um, finding the root of problems and solving for them. And so there are certain steps in that. And in order to truly solve any problem, it starts with empathy. If you do not have empathy, you can't connect to the true issue that's taking place. And so I found a lot of these parallels between um, evidence-based proven processes and problem solving in the business world and in design and then like in individuals too. And so we got to start with empathy for ourselves. And I call that taking inventory in the non-recipe book. So we're taking inventory of our own feelings, of our needs at that time. And also like our, what's available to us. Like if we don't take into account our individual needs and our individual resources, like how are we expected to change our behavior? Because what works for me and what I need to eat based on how much I exercise, what I've done that day, how much I slept, my individual muscle and body composition is like so entirely different than what someone else needs to do. So nowhere am I ever giving advice on like what someone needs to eat or how they, how much they should eat. That is like, like if you can tap into your own body and connect with yourself, that's an answer that you hold. I don't have that answer. Um, so starting out with empathy is like the key part of that. There's like other steps in that process and like just to name them, like figuring out what our needs are after we tap into them, getting inspiration, getting playful, experimenting and learning from that. Just figuring out as you go, trying, failing, trying, failing, and then like reflecting on that process and pivoting. Like through the process of reflection is when we are able to synthesize our learnings, right? If we don't take a moment to practice some gratitude, to understand a process, like we can't learn from it. Mm -hmm. We're just so, we move along so fast that we don't take a moment to pause and think, oh, how did that work for me? Was that good for my body? Did that, that feel right? Did that take too much time? Was that too much money? whatever it may be, but like through this process of like connecting with ourselves is where I think the keys to behavior change lie. That really brings <laughs> us to like the very core of this conversation, which is this burning question I've had. Is bacon good for you? <laughs> bacon, it makes me feel amazing. Yes. It, it really fuels my body, especially when I'm like about to go out and mm. farm. When I wake up in the morning and I have, for example, toast, let me tell you right now, I have the best bread hookup Ooh. in 
in the Shenandoah Valley. Where do you get your bread? Millsong yes. Bakery. Which one? The seeded wheat or? Sunflower Okay, spelt. sunflower spelled is the I, right runner-up. I love the seeded. Yes. I, I think I'm going to actually make the switch. I have a bread subscription. Oh, do you? I need so to hop on that train I for get real. a loaf every Saturday from Millsong Bakery. Nico's going to come on the podcast. I love that. I can't wait to hear it. So we're going to hear all about this, like, amazing, naturally leavened sourdough mm-hmm. bread. And, and hand-milled, like... They, they mill their grains too, which is so beautiful. Talk about that slow process of connecting with your food. Yes. Like, I, I taste that when I get that food. I taste yes. that and like the quality of it and, and how I feel after I eat it. Cold, stone milled, it's just the way to go. Yes. And we'll get into that. But, you know, I when I eat it for breakfast and then I go out and like try not to have coffee mm-hmm, or something, mm-hmm. I get tired. And when I have any kind of like carbohydrate in the morning, mm-hmm. I find that my energy is drained yeah. out. But give me some eggs and bacon. Yes. And I am so good to go. Well, okay, <laughs> tell so me your Let's go your on this. Okay, on so <laughs> I have so much to say here. First of all, that is like, so beautiful that you can connect your energy levels and your satiety and your mood to your food. A lot of people can't do that. They're like, why do I, why am I hitting this slump? And you've been able to understand, oh, when I eat this certain food, I feel a crash and burn or I feel sustained energy. And like, that's amazing. Let's try to sustain that energy. Um, and again, this process is imperfect and we figure it out and learn as we go. Um, most of the recipes in my book are primarily plant-based only because so many people weren't sure how to make vegetables taste so beautiful and amazing and and special. And I think that we, we can utilize all the vegetables that we have to t- make something that is incredible. But I am not against bacon by any means. And I'll add, like, for a little personal antidote here, um, I've been experimenting with eating more meat. So I was primarily plant-based for many years. And in the past few months, it's not something I talk about because I feel like there's so much judgment around, especially in a sustainable agriculture world and where we're trying to do the best for our planet and our bodies. And there is a lot of research you can find where people point to uh, animal meat being detrimental to our environment. Mm-hmm. Um, there's the environment to consider. There's our values. There's our, there's our body. We need to take all that into account and just know where we stand there. And I am working with a naturopathic physician. I was like not getting my period regularly. And Mm -hmm. that is like the first sign of something going wrong in your body. As a woman, we need to tap into those signals. And for so long in the sports world, that was like, oh, you're just, you just exercise a lot. You, you, oh, you don't weigh enough. Oh, that's just normal. And it's like, there is nothing normal about not getting your period. Like I can be a elite athlete and I can get my period. Like, why is this something that can't like coexist in the same world? And that's after your talk- body shutting down. That is my body shutting down. And like I can, I'm feeding my body so well, and yet it's like rejecting me. Like that was, that was really hard for me to feel like I didn't know my body. As someone who prides himself as so intimately knowing my body, to feel disconnected from that was like the most painful process going through with a doctor of being like, I don't know. I think my body hates me, and like. That was really hard. And so mm-hmm. I began experimenting with my diet, doing blood work. And I realized and this isn't giving medical advice. This is something that was like really unique to my body that I just share as like an antidote of like how nuanced everything can be. My cholesterol was so unbelievably healthy. My HDL was so high. That's your good cholesterol. LDLs, your quote unquote bad cholesterol. And yet sometimes with women, 
we need a little bit more LDL in order to produce our hormones because they are dependent on that cholesterol. And so I started experimenting with adding more of that plant cholesterol or not plant meat cholesterol and my period is more regular and I'm not sharing that to tell someone they need to eat meat by any means. That was my unique body. And so when you tapped into your body and something, your body was telling you something, you feel sustained energy there. There is no judgment for you to do that. Like how are we supposed to interact with our world if we can't do it fully? And like, yes, we want to do good for our planet. And like, I care so much about the consciousness and like life of animals. And I also want to live more fully. And so I don't know. I'm grappling with that. Like I am holding space for both of those to be like, I want to eat plants for this planet and for myself and for the environment and, and my values. And I also, I want to be a healthy individual and I want to do what's good for me. So it's a lot of the reason I don't give nutritional advice. Like, like you, you held that, you just shared the nutritional like wisdom that you had. Like, I don't have the answer for you. You just said it yourself. You said it made me feel good. And it's like, that's the exact example I'm talking about in my book. Like, Let's reflect on how that meal made us feel. I love carbs. Like I need some bread before I run or I feel incredibly fatigued. And I also need a little bit of protein. You know, it's like, well, I need a lot of protein actually. So (laughs) like I feel really good with carbs and I don't crash with them. And so that's why I'll never like, that's why I don't talk about like the amounts of my food and don't like, it really was hard to write a book about food and like feel like and not give food advice because like you can't help but influence someone when you talk about food. And like, I never want, I want someone to be influenced by themselves. And and it, so everything was so carefully chosen with writing because of that. And just like, thank you for sharing that, that story about how food made you feel. Cause I hope that is an example to other people listening that that's a similar self-talk and dialogue that we can have when we're eating, like tapping into our energy levels and how we feel sustained both like that day and down the road too. Like, it's going to differ for everyone. So like, that's a really lovely example of like your own experience with that. Absolutely. And, like parts of our cycle, like we're very cyclical beings. And so we need to tap into a part of our cycle. When do we have increased appetite? Um, when do we need more protein? When are we burning more energy? And like, just realizing that it's not a matter of counting calories. Like there is like so much that goes into it. It's not as simple as like what's on your Apple watch. And it's like, you had need to eat. 1,927 calories today. It's like, no, I did a metabolic test, um, basal metabolic test. So in school, I breathed through a tube and based on like my oxygen, it told me how many calories I, I burned a day by just laying in bed and it was over 3,400 calories. Excuse me. What? Yes. And so (laughs) it's like, there is no way for me to be like, well, I have that number. And then then there's how much I worked out that day and how many times I walked around campus and I love to ride my bike everywhere. So there's that element. And oh my gosh, how much my brain power did I use? Like, there's just no way. So we have to tap into what our body is telling us. Like only like our hunger levels and our cues and our body signals have that answer for us. Yes. Um, it's not in like the calorie counting every day for sure. And we actually need to do a bonus episode about <laughs> this whole conversation about like, what signals yeah. are our bodies sending mm-hmm. us and how do we interpret them and respond? Yeah, and it's like, it's not just our belly. Like, it's our brain, too. It's our mood. It's how we react with people. It's our aggravation. It's, it's how like, much sleep we yes, got. I know. Oh, my gosh. You you don't want to see me on a day of bad sleep with what I eat. I'm like, like, <laughs> my brain is just so fogged. I can't communicate clearly. The I, cravings. Yes, cravings because we're, we're saying, oh, my body's exhausted. Let me reach for food. It's like, well... 
actually we're asking for energy from sleep our brain did not have a chance to like hit the reset button last night to process things to do i love your podcast on dreaming to take the process of dreaming too um and so i am like the biggest proponent of sleep i am like adamant eight hours of sleep if i don't get at least seven i don't even exercise that morning i'm like there's no point i need to sleep over exercise like that's the most fundamental thing people are all about finding the hacks oh what if i take this supplement this will happen let me eat this thing let me take this pill no let's start with sleep like the most fundamental thing is getting eight hours of sleep most people it's eight hours changes for people but there's you don't you can't hack that there's sleep and then the rest of the things are cheap you want to optimize your sleep get sunlight first thing in the morning get your eyes on that sun set your circadian rhythm up for success and it's like i walk my dog every morning at sunrise and it has done the most spectacular things for my body and my hormones and like we can start there that's free that's yeah. free sleep is free yep. who we surround ourselves with it's not just consumption of our food but ideas and people that's free um our environment getting out into nature free for most people um so yeah we can talk about all these other aspects of health but like talking about what's accessible to everyone is like where we need to start amen mm-hmm. preach it so your experience as an athlete as a business entrepreneur and as a person who really cultivates mm-hmm. a philosophy around food has been rooted in an unconventional narrative that we don't see in other in many other conversations about any of these things which is self-compassion and this weaves into what we were talking about about listening to signals from your body it's also now the day following the autumn equinox and as we turn towards the dark side of the year where the sun moves farther away from us, we are called to turn in Mm -hmm. and really develop a fluency Mm -hmm. in how we interact with our internal dialogue and our conversation with ourselves. So can you talk about the role that self-compassion plays in how you choose to eat, how you choose to take care of yourself, and how you choose to move as a way of feeding your body and your flames oh my gosh there's so much to this so I think it'd be helpful to start off with like a little bit of backstory on my relationship to self-compassion and so I grew up as like a competitive swimmer and that's like very much rooted in a culture of like mental toughness like you persevere like if you're in pain like you continue on I mean I had double hip surgery I fought like tendonitis and like overuse injuries my whole life like going through multiple surgeries and still like being like you push through like you do this and what we don't realize is that like mental toughness and self-compassion can can exist together and they actually leverage one another and so a lot of people look at self-compassion as like being lazy and complacent like oh you're resting oh that's that you're not working hard enough and instead self-compassion actually leverages our recovery, our our connection to our body, and our performance, our level of happiness, decreased anxiety. And so instead, self-compassion is kindness. And it's approaching us like a gentle child. How would you talk to a kid that fell? Do you be like, you're fine, get up? Or would you say, oh, are what hurts? I'm here for you. Like, let's let's pay let's pay attention to this for a moment. And I grew up like having that injury. I, I fell, my shoulder hurts. 
no, 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 we're going to just push past that. And we like, you have a goal and you have to keep going. And that was like celebrated. Like Amanda's so tough. Mm -hmm. And so it took me a very long time to override those messages. And it wasn't until this very new research of the, the connection between mental toughness and self-compassion that is actually at the root of mental health. So when we talk about mental health, especially in athletes, where they exist in a world where performance is pressed upon them despite any condition. You look at Simone Biles in the past Olympics and her decision to step back and say, I'm doing this for myself and my mental health. I cannot perform right now. I will get injured. And everyone had things, their opinions to say about that. But that was an example of how she practiced self-compassion and she was mindful through that process. And and she was, she's mentally tough. Do you know how much she has persevered through? Like, who are we to say that she did not do her best there? Like only we'd have like that person holds that answer. Um, but in practicing self-compassion, like we can persevere and be tough and also be giving ourselves a hug and like food is a way to practice that. So much of eating people think needs to come from willpower and, um, only eating certain portions and having these strict diets and instead it's approaching food as saying like, what can I gift myself right now? It is like the most radical form of self-care and choosing despite what the media and society is telling us to do and eat to say, no, I'm going to choose myself right now. Mm-hmm. Like that is self-compassion. That is listening to myself. And so cultivating self-compassion by like having non-judgment towards yourself, by being kind, by practicing listening to your body, like practicing, let me just emphasize the word practicing listening to your body because it's not just one thing. Like, it's everything and how we do one thing is how we do everything and like there's this beautiful connection there so I feel like when I'm out in the woods and like and I make that connection to my body and I have self-compassion I'm able to just be like okay like I'm recognizing my inner landscape and I'm centering with myself and thus I'm able to connect and center with the world around me too and like that starts with our plate and extends into like the forest when we run and it's all related but it's a constant practice of that and you don't get self-compassion once and like it's done okay I'm good to myself now <laughs> like no it takes like therapy every week it takes practicing someone retraining our thought patterns because it's not what we were told yeah we're overriding intergenerational trauma we're overriding messages of society like it's it takes work and it's also like that's a form of self-care that is affordable because it's our self-talk And it's also really painful and uncomfortable. Yes. Yeah, because it involves saying not anymore to everything (sighs) that we've been Mm. taught about denying our own needs in in favor of serving other people's needs or other people's expectations. And what does it mean that we're all walking around with a sense of worth that is dependent on other people validating our mm-hmm. work based on how much we produce. Yes, it's all in production. I can tell you a story of I'd love to hear it. <laughs> this summer. I was dancing and hadn't stretched enough. I had done a really long, lovely yoga practice in the morning. And then around lunchtime, I tried to get in a dance on my lunch break. And I stretched a little bit to warm up. And I was like... I did yoga this morning. Yeah. It's fine. I'm, I'm already enough. nimble. And... and I wasn't even doing anything crazy, to be honest with you. But look at what happened. I tore my meniscus and yeah. I was I was on crutches for five weeks. I had to, 
I had to greet the perfectionism and self-worth mm. that didn't even realize how deeply rooted inside me that they are. But I was sitting there with an acute, serious injury, and I was not able to accept for the longest time that I had to slow down. Because the way that I earn my rent is by working on the farm. And so I felt so indebted to the farm crew and my expectations of myself to be able to contribute just like everybody else, Mm -hmm. even though I couldn't walk. And, you know, the emotional labor that was required in navigating the world through pain was um, just a daily drain Mm -hmm. that it made it hard for me to just sit back and say, well, I can't walk. That means I can't do what I was planning to do but I can do this. Yeah. And for the most of my injury, I wasn't really able to get to that place because I was still in this like refusal, denial of like my need, which was just to rest and to also like do little bits of physical therapy mm-hmm. with myself and yeah. do that. The other thing was like when I did get injured, I was three days away from traveling up to line three to participate oh, right. in nonviolent direct action in solidarity with the resistance and so I definitely couldn't travel or like be Mm. roughed around by security forces so I was really disappointed about that as well and again just like the divine timing Mm -hmm. of injury I needed to see where I could form roots and where I could act from like where I was (sighs) And, you know, get to a place where even within limits that I was not used to, I was able to figure out how I can channel this energy that I have that feels so frustrated. Like, all of my energy felt so Mm, frustrated. Like, pent up. And in many ways, I think that I didn't finish getting through that process with myself because I got better. And, yeah. uh, you know, it was five weeks. Injuries have so much to teach us. Yeah. But we have to be, well, like, open to learning, too, and it's painful. Especially I think, when you're physically in pain, too. Yeah. And I think the biggest lesson was, number one, to always warm up as much as you like. <laughs> really need to. Yes. And number two is about, like, working more with myself about where my worth comes from. Mm. Because that one was a really difficult Mm -hmm. process that it was so painful for me we attach our worth and identity to what we do what where we get income our place in the world and like we need like as much fulfillment that I derive from moving and and the work that I do like it demands me to have a very healthy relationship with that not get too attached to it, not get, and I learned that, and it's like, I learned that through injury, and yet, like, time and time again, I keep, like, I'm like, oh, but this is what I want to fully commit to, and you can fully commit, and also, like, realize, like, and if it doesn't, if I don't win the world championships, then, like, I'm also still, like, a, like, great person, and, I, like, my worth does not depend on the outcome of a race, and I feel like that's, like, your story, and the healing of your injury, and the lessons that you learned about focusing on what you can do which is like our mind and addressing our inner thoughts and 
doing our PT and like fueling our body, like with healing foods and rest, like we can focus on what we can do. And like, I also felt that same sense that you felt when you couldn't contribute to the solidarity standing that you wanted to do at the pipeline and to your farm community. Whereas like when I was on a team, it's like, I owe them that like, I made a promise to like show up to race and like be a part of this family and team. And, um, I felt like I let people down and it's like really in reality, people just want us to feel better and to heal. But for some reason, like we get so caught up in that. And so like so many parallels that you made to your experience and like even just how we interact with society and what we owe it and how we can give and like our worth depending on it is like so similar to the athletic. They depend on me. And like, it's true, but it's also like, sometimes we need to remember we're important and we're also not that important. We're like, yes. it's great to see that like, oh, we are so impactful and change the world. And also to hold that very loosely and say, you know, it'll go on if we rest. Yeah. It'll actually be better because of that. <laughs> Absolutely. I like to think of that little box that you check when you have to prove that you're not a robot. Oh. And each time I check it, I'm like, I'm not a robot. I'm a human. <laughs> Out of everything that I learned from that experience, the biggest thing was that my worth does not come from what I give to other people. Mm. I am already of value before I do anything for people, before I do any of the things that I enjoy doing because I'm in relationship and I'm in community and because I have commitments. I already have a complete and whole sense of value mm. and that cannot be taken away. Yeah, I, I can relate to that so much where growing up my worth was significantly attached to my achievements, whether that was in swimming or it later became like in school and in work. And if the biggest thing that I learned through injury was like loosening that relationship that I have with my work to say that, yeah, like I can derive fulfillment from this and I'm also not attached to it that like I am so much more than an athlete. I am a human being that cares and loves and can give to this world. And I find that when you talk about like that song, the joy that you receive and is in me, it's like, that's in like those moments that we like care for ourselves, And like, it feels like the most like tender hug to our body to like cook ourselves a nourishing meal or to go out into the woods and let's listen to nature and connect with our body and our breath. It's like, that's simple joy, that's free joy. That's the joy you get in nature from sunlight, from our breath, from sleep. It's simple. Like it comes from us. Like doesn't, you don't get it from the outcomes. Like you it comes from the process too. Yeah. Like the process is so beautiful and I love the process and I love sharing the process. And like, to me, like writing this book and sharing about it has been like a living, like living my example of writing too. Like I hope that in the share, the stories that I share and in the life that I live that it's like, I'm just talking about how I act in alignment with these principles of my book because I'm like an imperfect person by all means and I'm constantly learning and I can't attach like my self-worth to like how my book performs either it's just an act of like creativity for me yeah it's giving what you most deeply desire mm, to give yes and and I have no um expectation people are always asking me so what do you want to do like when the book comes out? I'm like, I haven't thought that far to be honest. And like the business part of me is like, are you an idiot? Like, why aren't you planning this? And then I'm like, no, cause whatever happens is gonna happen. And 
by me acting in like my highest power and my deepest alignment, only beautiful things will come out of that process. And I trust that I've done this process enough to know that when you live in alignment with what you care about and the messages that you have and how you live, that like that's where connection takes place and how, where it comes to life. And uh, I just know like that'll that'll lead to something. I don't know what it's gonna look like, but it's gonna be lovely. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the path is always leading you somewhere. I know it really is, and just being involved in this community too, and talking to you and sharing space in Harrisonburg where I have like the outdoors in my backyard to connect with myself and others. And I'm constantly elevated by people in this community too, who show me what's possible, who like lend me a hand, who show me my own like capabilities within me and also like lift me up and show me what's possible with their strengths. And I'm so fortunate to be surrounded by these sort of people that just up my game. And yeah, it's just one of the things that's, just made living in Harrisonburg like such a beautiful, beautiful place. You're one of them. <laughs> you are. We are. Yes. So, Amanda, your book is out end of April, early mm-hmm. May. Mm-hmm. Yes. And where can people find it? Where can people find you? And how can they follow yes. your story? Okay, so since I'm self, I'm doing a hybrid publishing model where I'm writing this and like finding the places where it goes myself, but I'm having the help of editors to make sure this is a high quality piece of art. So, um, if anyone has ideas of books, like of bookshops, of independent stores, of coffee shops that want to sell my book or connect with the messages that I have to share, that's awesome. Like that's the kind of crowdfunding and engagement I want to get in people. And I did the crowdfunding. It was so cool to share that process and connect with people over it. So I want to continue that process by even like, how I get this book to market. So reach out with ideas. I tend to share a lot of stories on Instagram. It's just a easy platform to connect with others on. And um, I also have a website at amandapressgraves.com and social media is at amandapressgraves. Um, but if you, if listening and if any listeners listened and connected to the messages that I was sharing, like please reach out. And I, just from crowdfunding, I've been able to connect with so many people in their stories through email too. So I love email exchange. I love voice message exchange instead of texting. Oh, I love voice message. Yeah, it's just like so much deeper and I can do it on the go. Text messages feel like a commitment a lot of times to send. I have to like craft this formal message, but instead I can just talk from the heart to someone and go back and forth in conversation. And While on your bike. And while on my bike, yeah, it's like <laughs> while on the move because I tend to be. So I'm so fortunate for that. But yeah, connecting on social media, connecting over the book, I hope to do events around town too. So I work out of the co-working space. I help manage the perch. So connecting with me in person, going out on a trail run, going riding our bikes around town, um, making a meal with someone. Those are like my favorite ways to connect with people in real life. So um, if anyone wants to do that, hit me up. (laughs) Amazing. And she really means it, y'all. Also, her partner, Andrew, is an amazing photographer and captures the most stunning vistas of the places where Amanda runs and bikes and camps. He does justice to this beautiful backyard and world that we live in. And I'm so grateful that I've also been able to vicariously just live through his growth of his like career too and push him. And I see so much potential in his work. And I love how he's able to shed light on 
so many aspects of our outdoor recreation and community too. So check out his work. He was able to capture a lot of the footage for the non-recipe book crowdfunding video and a lot of the photos that I'm able to attach storytelling with. So I'm forever grateful to have like his creative energy and spark in my life as well. And yeah, shout out to my boy, Andrew. <laughs> <laughs> Links to all of these pages will be in our show yes. notes. Amanda, thank you so much. You. I cannot wait to hear this conversation in its fullness and also to be a part of all of the celebrations and gatherings mm -hmm. happening around your book when it comes out in May. And I am just really grateful for everything that you brought today. Thank you for holding the space for me and also so intentionally doing research and backstory to a lot of what led me to writing the non-recipe book and it was just so clear and like the conversations the rich conversation that we had that you put time into this so thank you for that time and that energy amanda and i are now gonna go pick figs yes. on emu's campus yes yes i'm so excited we were talking about how i'm also incredibly excited for persimmon season and you said there was a tree on this campus yes emu has quite a food forest going yes. on Yes, that's why EMU is so cool. So in addition to being a great place to record a podcast. Yes, thank you. <laughs> it is also a great place to forage for some delicious foods. Mm -hmm. And connect with our seasons through what's our bounty right now. Yes, day after Equinox, what else mm -hmm. would we be doing but eating yeah, figs? Yes, that's right. <laughs> thank you all so much for listening. If you appreciate this work, the simplest and easiest way to support it is by hitting that follow button on whatever platform you're listening, sharing it with your friends, and following us over on Instagram at wildhoney.collective. We have had some amazing collective alchemy going on, with last week's screening of our original film, Mother Wounds, exploring the sacred and resistance from pipelines to patriarchy. Y'all, we raised $1,000 for Appalachians Against Pipelines to support their direct action work resisting the Mountain Valley Pipeline. Do you want more Collective Alchemy? Of course you do. We are starting Cooking Collective in December. Every Friday night, we'll be hosting pop-up dinners bringing us together over cooking, food, and an intentional space to reflect on our individual relationships to self, health, and wealth, and hold each other accountable. We'll also be starting a book club, Shelf Discovery Book and Breakfast Club. You can buzz into either of these offerings by signing up through the link in all the bios. New episodes come out every Friday for all of season one, but if you want to hear more, you can get your friends to follow wildhoney.collective on Instagram, and you can support the podcast on Patreon by becoming a monthly subscriber, which comes with added benefits, including merch. Rock the culture out in the world. Help us pollinate ideas for greater collective health. And for all you wild honeys out there, keep creating.